Well, the congregation of the Lord, turn with me again to Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 6. Jeremiah 31 and verse 6. For there shall be a day that the watchmen upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise ye, and let us go up to Zion unto the Lord our God. Well, of a congregation this morning, we considered the reference that the prophet uses in this particular verse to a watchman. And both the meaning of the word itself, as well as the context, where there are references to Samaria, to the northern kingdom of Israel, and to the mountains of it, all these things, they lead us to the conclusion that Jeremiah is pointing us back to an episode of the history of the people of God, a very sad one. The final judgment of God upon that northern kingdom as the nation itself is destroyed or brought into captivity in the land of Assyria. And we spoke about how that uh, historical account in 2 Kings chapter 17, of which Jeremiah was the probable author himself, how it was that that uh, History records how in the midst of so much idolatry, such that throughout all the land there were idols and sacrifices unto the false god Baal. And in the midst of it, yet the people found time to attend to their livelihood and the blessing they received from the land. They had watchmen who were guarding the grapevines. And this is the word that is used here. We cite again from Isaiah chapter 27, verse 3, where the Lord himself uses it again in reference to his people as a vine. I, the Lord, do keep it. Same word. Keep it. I will water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I will keep it night and day. Well, Striking as it is, the prophet Jeremiah is inspired to use that very illustration of the watchman attending to his vine to picture something of the blessings of the new covenant. Whereas the blessings of the old covenant ended in a climactic display of judgment and bloodshed upon the northern kingdom, yet this passage speaks of the incomparable grace that is manifested at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, such as the reference in verse 6 where it says, For there shall be a day. There shall be a day. And you remember, of course, that that was the refrain throughout uh, the previous chapter as well, the great day or the great days that are coming under the, under the reign of Messiah. There was the reference, of course, in chapter 30, verse 9, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Speaking, of course, of the greater 
son of David. And then, of course, verse 21, their governor shall proceed from the midst of them, and I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach unto me. For who is this that engaged his heart to approach unto me, saith the Lord? And ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. Indeed, it is the coming of our blessed Savior that is spoken of here. And as we spoke last week at some length about how the vines that are pictured in this prophecy speak of the instituted churches of the new covenant, congregations of the Lord Jesus Christ, such as we are by his grace, They are held forth here as that manifestation of the great salvation that has been wrought. Indeed, that as a consequence of the coming of Messiah's reign, there are a people set apart for his worship and praise and service. And they join themselves as congregations pictured as these vines, sustained and nourished through his hand. But here it speaks of the watchmen, of course, for there shall be a day that the watchmen upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise ye, and let us go up to Zion unto the Lord our God. Whereas it takes its picture or um, or its um, or the, or the picture that's set before here from the Old Covenant was of a very sorry scene, the compromise of the people before destruction. Yet the image is taken up here to picture a very precious thing, and that is the ministry of Christ in the churches, the ministry of Christ in the churches through his servants. In order to explain that, in order to unfold something of the meaning of this verse, we will consider it under two thoughts. First, we will see the office of the watchman, the office of the watchman, and second, the message of the watchman. First, the office of the watchman, and and second, the message. Well, I think that the commentators are agreed that the most likely reference in the immediate case is to ministers of the gospel. And if you track with the reasoning of this passage, it it certainly makes sense. The vines are held forth as a picture of the churches. And so just as those people tending and watching over the vines under the uh, history that we considered were set apart for that task, so we reason now Who are the watchmen of the churches? Well, they are the ministers of the gospel. Those people who are set apart, men of God's calling and choosing to preach the word, to administer the sacraments, and together with the ruling elders to administer discipline and discipleship of the Lord's people. And in seeking to unfold something of this, I I also do not want to exclude anyone who would be listening for practical application as well. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 17, the very same word for being a watchman 
is used in a very general sense of all the people of God. In Proverbs 16, verse 17, the highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He that keepeth or watcheth his way preserveth his soul. And so I would hope that as we seek to apply something of what this office entails, that in the same way that we considered how all of the Lord's people are to be engaged in the work of planting the churches, so also we will seek in our own way and station to enter into this work of watching over the churches. And I hope as we seek to go go through these principles, we will see that it is something that all the Lord's people are involved with. Well, the the special reference to uh, ministers of the gospel seems to be carried over also with one of the more common titles that is used in the New Testament for ministers of the gospel, and that is translated in our King James Bible as bishop, bishop. And you see that, for example, in Titus verse one, chapter 1, verse 7, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Well, you read of this man's qualifications and you read of his calling, that is to hold fast the faithful word and to use it in order to refute those who are attacking the, uh, the church. But I want to consider precisely that word. Bishop, translated, uh, is in the Greek episkopos from which we uh, sometimes get episcopacy in some churches that uh, especially make much of the office of bishop might call themselves Episcopalians and so forth. But you read this uh, chapter of Titus and other passages like it's very clear. It is referring not to some elevated kind of person like You would see the Archbishop of Canterbury in the Church of England, for example, who wears special robes and a special hat and has a special rank above all other ministers in that uh, that church. No, that's, that's not biblical at all, for it's used in parallel simply for the ordinary title of elder. Elder. Just as the minister is an elder, he's also a bishop. And this word, episkopos, it it has the idea of an overseer, one who is looking, one who is observing. And as he is looking and observing, he is taking on that role of the watchman. He is attending to the church of the living God, the precious congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ is overseeing this great supernatural work on behalf of the one who has called him, even Christ Jesus himself. And certainly all those qualifications we listed, they go into it. But uh, the first thing we ought to see is this, that the overseer, the bishop, the watchman, 
is to be one who is taking heed to himself in the first place. As indeed Paul instructed Timothy, that minister of the gospel, in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16, Take heed unto thyself, and unto thy doctrine continue in them. For in doing this thou shalt save both thyself and them that hear thee. I remember on one occasion, Dr. David Murray, one of the professors of theology, he read that in our hearing in, in the class at seminary, and he said, well, of course, you can reverse that, of course, can't you? And say that if you do not attend to yourself, not only will you not save yourself and those who hear you, but you will destroy yourself and those that hear you. It is the personal life of the man of God that is held forth here, the personal walk with the Lord that is especially set forth, that he himself must be one who knows the Lord Jesus personally. He himself must be one who is walking with God. He himself must be one who is seeking to walk blamelessly before the sight of God and men. And his usefulness in the service of Christ is bound up with this, you see, that he is watching over himself in the first place. And of course, doesn't that just echo with what we had read from the Proverbs? He that keepeth his way preserveth his soul. He that watches over his life, over himself, preserves his soul. If we would be of any use to the church of God, whether in an office or out of an office, surely it is this, taking care to our own walk with the Lord, our personal relationship with God, and adorning a life of godliness that is consistent with it. Bound up with that, of course, is attending to the special duties that are given to the minister of God. If we were to attend to ourselves and to our doctrine, what is it that we are tasked with particularly? Well, surely it's summarized very well in the words of the apostles themselves in Acts chapter 6, verse 4. We will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Those two things, prayer and the ministry of the word, indeed characterizing all Christians, we understand in some way this duty of prayer, but in a special way that the minister of the gospel is to bathe his sermons in prayer and to remember particularly the members of his congregation in prayer, praying for their particular needs, praying for their uh, spiritual good before the Lord, praying that they would be preserved from the attacks and snares of the devil. And of course, laboring in the word, laboring that the doctrines of the gospel would be brought forth, that the word of truth would be rightly divided, that it would be applied and sealed unto the people through the preaching of the gospel. And so it is that Peter exhorts the 
ministers, the watchmen in First Peter chapter 5, verses 2 to 3, feed the flock which is among you, taking oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, he shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. What a great comfort that is. The chief shepherd, the chief overseer, the chief watchman, he is the one who shall appear. And where he appears, he shall distribute blessings in due measure unto all of his servants. Not one work of his servants will be overlooked. Though those who are teachers must give a a greater account, all of us must give an account surely for how we conduct ourselves in the church of the living God, how we use our gifts, how we are watching and caring for the church of the Lord. I think particularly where we look at this watchman, there he is looking at the vine that has been entrusted to him, looking at the fruit that is produced, watering this vine, tending to it, ensuring its health and continual growth. We ought not to neglect, surely, that there is the calling to protect it from threats, to protect the church of God from threats. This is perhaps neglected where we speak of shepherds, that we forget that, yes, there is the crook of the shepherd in order to gently guide the sheep, but there is also the rod in order to beat away wolves. There is indeed that gentle touch that guides the precious flock of God, and there is also the rod in order to ward away false teachers. And so it is Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 30. There the Apostle Paul instructs the elders or the ministers there in the church of Ephesus, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch, watch, and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn every one of you night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all which are sanctified. Each one of those exhortations worthy of special regard, but I think it's particularly this that I would draw attention to, that it's the word of God's grace that he sets before them. I think if you'd been on the consistory there in Ephesus and you'd heard the Paul exhorting you saying, well, you've better be especially attentive to your task because there are going to be these wolves. They are going to seek to devour the flock. There are going to be these false teachers, even some that may arise among your very ranks. 
And what does he commit them? What does he commit them to? It is the word of God's grace. A right understanding of the word of God, a wisdom in how to apply it. Here is what has preserved the church through all, all ages. However well we may have a church order or church rules, however much we may have traditions that are good in their place, it is this, it is this that will protect the church. It is this that is entrusted to the watchman to guard the vine against threats. This word of God, which is sharp as a two-edged sword, I think that one of the things that we ought to remember in in this connection is the authority of the watchman. The authority of the watchman. For there shall be a day that the watchman upon Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise ye, and let us go up to Zion unto the Lord our God. Here they are. They have been entrusted unto the church to care for it to nourish it, to protect it. And indeed, we, we believe and, and we practice that the right uh, way this should proceed is respecting the right of every congregation to call their own office bearers, whether teaching elders like ministers or ruling elders or deacons. This proceeds not upon uh, just uh, the whim of synod or something like that. No, but through prayer and through a process whereby the heads of households they vote upon that which the Lord is calling uh, is laying upon their hearts to call men to that work whether ministers, elders or deacons and so some have, have speculated is it the case for example that because there is this important process of calling which takes place through and in the church that the authority of the men of God, they, uh, they especially have an authority to answer to the church itself. That the church itself has the authority and they invest that authority in, in the watchmen or the overseers. Well, no one contended more for the reform principle of every congregation calling their own office bearers than the Puritan John Owen. But I wish that you would hear what it is that John Owen says about this in his uh, great work, uh, Short Instruction in the Worship of God. In question 28, he poses this question, wherein principally doth the authority of the elders of the church consists, having in mind both teaching elders and ruling elders. Where does their authority come from? What is the authority that they wield? And this is his answer. Quote, in that rule of the church and the guidance thereof and things appertaining unto the worship of God is committed unto them. And therefore, Whatever they do as elders in the church, according unto rule, they do it not in the name or authority of the church by which their power is derived unto them, nor as members only of the church by their own consent or covenant, but in the name and authority of Jesus Christ, by whom by virtue of his law and ordinance their ministerial office and power 
are, are re received. So that in the exercise of any church power by and with the consent of the church, there is an obligation thence proceeding, which ariseth, ariseth immediately from that authority which they have received of Jesus Christ, which is the spring of all rule and authority in the church. What is he saying? Well, that the authority of the church is not as a democracy where there is simply a, a delegated authority from the people, although even in civil rule we understand, of course, that all that authority uh, answers to God as well. But in a very special way, there, the, there is church authority, and that authority rests with Christ alone. The only rule in the church is that of Christ himself. And where the minister and where the elder and where the deacon would exercise their office, particularly in that authoritative role that each has, they answer to Christ alone. And in that role, they are to be received as the ministers and ambassadors of Christ. So it is that the apostle speaks in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Indeed, we do see there that this is ordained for the peace of the church. How is it the peace of church can be realized? Well, it is through having the mind of Christ. How is it that the mind of Christ is made known? It is through his word. And how is the word of God applied unto the church? Well, it is through those called to understand it and to apply it. So it is that there is this prescription for the unity and peace of the vineyard of the Lord under the new covenant. But as I said at the beginning, it's not to the exclusion of every individual member of the church exercising their particular gifts. Indeed, you have many places in which all members of the church are to be valued and respected, to be heard in order that we would all of us come to a greater understanding of our callings and exercise those callings faithfully. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13, but exhort one another. A general instruction and command. Exhort one another, all Christians. Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. And surely we cannot keep that particular calling to exhort one another daily if we are not attending to the health of our fellow Christians, indeed physical health, but I have in mind particularly spiritual health. We would exhort one another not to fall into the deceitfulness of sin. We would exhort one another to serve the Lord and to walk humbly before our God. So it is that in our proper station, all of us are to be watching. We are to be watching against wolves. We're to be watching against threats. We're going to be watching in order to maximize the health and edification and holiness of the people of God. And in this way, all things 
are um, provided for our good if we would do such things in faith and dependence on the Lord's grace. Thus far we have considered the office of the watchman, but in the second place consider the, the message, the message. For there shall be a day that the watchman upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise ye! And let us go up to Zion unto the Lord our God. Here is a special message that is being cried out by the watchman. Indeed, why it is most probably in the first instance referring to ministers of the gospel who have a special obligation to cry and herald the great news of salvation under the new covenant. We considered that uh, in the scripture reading where the prophet Isaiah speaks in this way about the ministry of the gospel as it is heralded forth in Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 to 8. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God Reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. So let us consider in particular what is the message that is sounded forth by the watchmen here. Well, the first part of it is arise, arise, get up. Here is the picture. You have people who are lying down. Perhaps they are resting. Perhaps they are exhausted. Perhaps they have no energy whatsoever. And yet here you have an exhortation to get up, to arise. Indeed, there is something of this exhortation in the gospel proclamation of the new covenant. Jeremiah 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. As Jesus Christ, our glorious Lord and Savior, is proclaimed, as he is held forth as the Son of God come in our nature, as he is proclaimed as the one who is crucified and suffered for sinners, there is this always attached to it, that those in spiritual death, those in spiritual decline, those in spiritual stupor are to act. They are to arise. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 14, Wherefore he saith, Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Romans 13 verses 11 to 12, And that knowing the time, that now is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. It is the calling of the minister to indeed have this command to rise. The son of righteousness has risen with healing in his wings and so you are to arise, my friend. Is there any here who is face down? 
in the dirt, exhausted, beaten, and bruised? Is there any who feels themselves perishing under the wrath of a holy God? Is there any who feels themselves spiritually dead and without any life whatsoever? Well, here is the calling of the gospel. Arise, Christ has risen, and so you must live. Christ has ascended, and so you must seek those things that are above. Christ has died for sinners, so you must believe. You must repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Receive Christ. Arise. There is this as well. Not only arise, but also this. Go up to Zion. Go up to Zion. Arise ye and let us go up to Zion. Here we have an explanation of this passage from the commentator, Dr. John Gill. And he ascribes this to the church of God, to attend to the word of God, his worship and ordinances, to which sometimes there is a backwardness arising from sloth or laziness, from a lukewarm frame of spirit from a love of the world and a vain conceit of their own sufficiency and knowledge. It is the business of gospel ministers to stir up persons, to frequent the house of God and attend public worship in it, since it is not only their duty but their interest and privilege. Here they have true pleasure and real profit. You see, of course, there are valid reasons for absenting from the worship of God, sometimes there are health reasons, sometimes there are very important reasons why attending the worship of God is not possible. And yet the calling of myself as a watchman of the Lord is to say, Arise, let us go up to Zion together. Not you go up to Zion, but let us go up to Zion. Let us together join in this great worship of our God. What a great privilege it is to even attend unto these humble means that are appointed unto sinners for their salvation, that are appointed unto Christians, that they may glory in their God and Father through and in Jesus Christ. What was the great wickedness of the northern kingdom of Israel? What was the wickedness of the southern kingdom of Judah? What is the wickedness of the apostate Roman Catholic Church? What is the wickedness of so many professing Christians and churches today? It is that they can worship God in whatever way they choose, however they choose, when they choose, instead of how God chooses, instead of the way God chooses, instead of at the time and day that God chooses. We imagine that God will simply come at our beck and call when it suits us rather than treating it as it truly is, as a royal proclamation that you are summoned into the presence of a great and glorious God and creator. Indeed, I heard convicting word about that. You'd imagine if you were but a few miles away from the sun, then you would be incinerated in an instant. Sometimes we imagine we can casually stroll into the house of God without preparation, without prayer, without seeking the Lord's help to meditate upon the word and to get ourselves in a proper frame of mind and imagine 
that we will be blessed. And yet we are going up to Zion, into the very presence of the living God, through the means of grace that he has appointed. It was for this reason that it was a very special burden unto the people of God in any season when they could not frequent the house of God, or they could not be among the Lord's people, nor worship him as they would desire. And here it is, the call. We are to go up. We are to frequent the church of God and the congregation where the Lord in his wisdom has called us to. We are to be there. We are to do it not for this or that personal preference. We are to do it as obedience to the command of our king. Notice Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. It is a matter of holding fast the profession of our faith. It is a matter of stirring one another up to good works. It is a matter of preparing for the approaching day of the Lord's return. And for all these reasons, we are not ever to forsake the assembling of ourselves together for anything other that we would imagine is more important. It is this. It is of supreme importance that we be in the house of God and for, and in that way we glorify him. I think it's important to listen to what is said in Article 28 of the Belgic Confession, very contrasted to the kind of casual, consumerist, me-centered mindset of our contemporary society. Listen to what it says in Article 28 of our Belgic Confession. We believe that since this holy congregation is an assembly of those who are saved and that out of it there is no salvation, that no person of whatsoever state or condition he may be ought to withdraw himself or to live in a separate state from him, but that all men are in duty bound to join and unite themselves with it maintaining the unity of the church, submitting themselves to the doctrine and discipline thereof, bowing their necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ and as mutual members of the same body, serving to the edification of the brethren according to the talents God has given them. Indeed, perhaps we would want to modify that and say, well, does it say that there is Um, No salvation outside of the church, surely. It is at least theoretically possible you can have a true Christian believer who has not united himself to the true church. I think the Westminster Confession puts it a little bit more precisely where it says that there is no ordinary means of salvation outside of this visible instituted church. But however we must uh, understand this part of our confession, surely is this that the one who despises the ministry and discipline and worship of the instituted church must think very little of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
And indeed, it is a very troubling sign of their spiritual condition. So it is where the Lord has laid upon you, dear one, the desire to be in his house, the desire to frequent the worship of God, to indeed to be in one body with other believers in the congregation where you are, uh, have taken vows, then indeed that is the place you are to frequent. That is the place that you are to use your gifts also to the glory of our Savior. So we see that there are these parts of the message. There is arise and there is go up to Jerusalem. But the third and last thing ought not to be neglected either. For there shall be a day that the watchmen upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise ye, let us go up to Zion unto the Lord our God. Here is what we are called unto, not just to ritual, not just to an institution, not even unto a community, but to the Lord our God, our God. Not just the Lord God, but our God, our God in covenant. You think of what it was that the Apostle Thomas said unto our Savior when he rose from the dead, my Lord and my God. Could there be a more perfect expression that we could speak of our precious Jesus than our Lord and our God and all the majesty of his deity and all the brightness of his father's person and all the perfection of his wisdom, power, holiness, and goodness? Here is the fairest of 10,000, the delight of the true people of God, the bridegroom of the church. And here he is, and he would beckon, and he would command, and he would call his people to come unto him by means of his means of grace. You see, these two things are not opposed one to the other. Attending unto preaching, attending unto prayer, attending unto the word, and coming unto Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is the very word of God incarnate has used the inscripturated word, the inspired word, as his holy instrument to bring you unto himself, dear one. Here are the very words of God, and they are in your ears, and they are in your heart, and they are in your mind. Why and what for purpose that the Holy Spirit would bring you unto the precious Savior? the Holy Spirit of Christ engrafting you unto him as branches unto a vine. Indeed, he is the true vine, is he not? He is the one who gives nourishment and life unto all believers and unto all churches and to all the people of God. And he says, truly, without me, you can do nothing. Do you imagine that you can get anything out of these things, of coming to church, of pretending to pray without being united unto Christ Jesus. Do you imagine that apart from him you will have anything at all? No. It is only by finding Christ in the word, by indeed finding him as your very Savior, the one who has suffered and died for your salvation, that you can be of any use unto God's church, that you can bring any glory to the Lord's name. It's only in this way that you can do anything but shore up more condemnation for yourself. 
But what a blessing it is that there is a true church of God. There is a gospel that is proclaimed. Arise, let us go unto Zion. Let us go unto the Lord our God. It is spoken also in your hearing today, dear one, that you would receive him who comes so close, the one who would have you in his very church. Not the church merely instituted, but the holy, catholic, universal church of God's elect. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18, For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire unto blackness, and darkness and tempest, not unto Mount Sinai where the law was revealed. Verse 22, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. I think here is how it is that we each know our place and role within the church of God. It is by coming unto Jesus Christ and seeking above all things that he would be magnified. I love what it was that uh, the... um, John the Baptist, the Lord's prophet, spoke when his, when his uh, disciples asked him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. And John, he does not answer in a defensive way. He does not hold any uh, resentment whatsoever. He says in verse 29 of John chapter 3, He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice, and my joy therefore is fulfilled. If we have slight joy and small joy in the things of God and the worship of God and the service of the church, May, we, may I ask you this question? Is it because that you lack this mindset of John the Baptist here, that he must increase and I must decrease? I must become nothing and he, as it were, must become everything. When Jesus Christ is magnified and the people of God are united in such a vision that he be lifted up and we would fade into the background, Surely what else but peace and unity can abound? For it is Christ's church. It is his vine. 